Hello authors, I'm Joanne Morell, children's and young adult fiction writer and author of short non-fiction for authors. Thanks for joining me for the Hybrid Author Podcast, sharing interviews from industry professionals to help you forge a career as a hybrid author, both independently and traditionally publishing your books. You can get the show notes for each episode and sign up for your free author pass over at the Hybrid Author website to discover your writing process, get tips on how to publish productively and get comfortable promoting your books at www.hybridauthor.com.au. Let's crack on with the episode. Rebecca Lafar Smith gave up a successful career writing about the non-fiction world in favour of fantastical creatures and the fanciful things she could create and immortalise in fiction. Now she writes full-time while homeschooling her autistic son, raising her creative daughter and offering coaching, mentorship and events within her writing community. She dreams of someday running a writer's retreat on the outskirts of Perth and writing her stories in a detached hexagonal room with dozens of bookshelves and plenty of natural light. Wow, welcome to the podcast, Rebecca. Thank you, Joanne. We'll start. Whenever I talk to writers, they love that idea of that hexagonal room. <laughs> yes, yeah, I'm I'm trying to picture that. Is there reasons for that? What's behind that? What that? a dream. <laughs> In in the vision of that, I wanted lots of natural lights, the sliding um, glass doors, but I also want lots of bookshelves, so it yes. needs to be kind of lots of walls. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Walls well, will do it. <laughs> yeah. If you ever recognize that dream, you'll have to come back on and tell us all about it and share some photos. Uh, so we'll start with that age-old question of how you became a writer in the first place. It's it's one that goes back years and years and years. I've been writing all my life. I still, whenever I do author talks, people asked me when I started writing and I, I can recite the two-line poem that I wrote as a six-year-old oh, um, but okay. I was first published as a poet when I was 12 and I've been writing professionally for 20 odd years let's not go into that yeah <laughs> um but yeah it was it was a passion in in high school well late primary school and high school when I read Tracy Harding's The Ancient Future Trilogy uh Tracy Harding's also a dyslexic Australian author but what I loved about her trilogy was that she embedded metaphysics into fiction and it made me realize that fiction is a powerful tool for being able to express really big ideas in a way that absolutely anyone will be open to receiving. So, yes, I got inspired. Oh, fantastic. Can you recite the two-sentence poem? <laughs> I should have known you'd do that. The little whispering flower, stand tall and make a shout. Let everything around you know that you're about. Oh, I love it. That's fantastic. Well done. Yeah, I just put you on the spot there. So <laughs> uh, so you're known around Perth and beyond as the writing around Western Australia queen. Can you tell us a bit about what that entails? Well, writing around Australia is a lot younger than the queen I actually am known as. I'm probably known best as the nano lady because I've been doing a National Novel Writing Month and running events in WA since 2012 and for a long time I coordinated the Ride Along the Highway Writers Festival with dozens of libraries across the state um, and we'd take events out to writers all over the place. A few years ago, 2017, those libraries wanted to slow down and take it a bit more easy. They wanted to focus on their own local community rather than the statewide um, project I'd kind of built Riding Along the Highway into. Mm. So they, they stepped me down and they focused on their individual communities but it kind of meant the nano angle 
started to fall apart. They would do some author talks and some workshops, but they weren't really focusing on bringing the NaNoWriMo community together. So that's why I created Writing Around Western Australia. It's basically writing along the highway, but it's an independent movement of 400 writers across Western Australia, 400 and growing. Fantastic. That's wonderful. So we're going to be talking about your recent publication, which is a plot storming novel writer's workbook. How did you come up with the idea and did it take a long time to put it together from sort of idea in your mind to finished product? It did take a long time, but not because the workbook itself was difficult to make. It was because I didn't know I needed it. When I first started teaching the plot storming workshop, I've been teaching it for about 10 years now. And I would just go into libraries and schools and I would teach the workshop and I'd, I'd hand out worksheets. And over the course of those 10 years, I'd really kind of honed and developed it as a presentation. But every time I'd present a workshop, I'd be presenting from anything from five attendees to sometimes 300 attendees. And I'd be printing out all of these worksheets every time I'm about to do a presentation. And I just got sick of the printing. So I thought, let's make this easier for myself and actually create it into a workbook that I can easily bind and therefore get print on demand and print up dozens of copies. And it ends up being cheaper and more cost effective. Mm. But then, of course, people who don't necessarily or who aren't necessarily able to come to an in-person live training of that workshop also wanted to be able to get their hands on the workbook. So I published it broadly so that anyone can use the workbook, buy a copy anytime they're preparing a new book and work their way through it to do that outlining and preparation. Fantastic. That's great. And um, when it comes to independently publishing workbooks, how has the experience differed from publishing novels? This, this, this is your first workbook, is it? Yes. So it's my first workbook that's um, published in this kind of format. Mm-hmm. As I said, I've been doing workshops, so I've done my own little hand-bound workbooks and things like that in the past. I found that creating a workbook isn't very different from creating the novels. Well, it, it's a little different from creating novels, but it's not different from the kind of publishing that I've been doing. Because I do uh, children's books, illustrated picture books, um, I was already very familiar with fixed layout design, which is what workbooks require. It's where the layout on the page is set in so that whenever you print it on any kind of paper, everything is going to stay in the same place. Whereas um, most people who publish novels look at doing ebook publishing and that requires a reflowable format uh, where the text will change its width and dimension depending on whatever device it's being read on. So using a fixed layout design, I use InDesign as my um, software for designing um, interior layouts. Um, it was relatively easy to just go ahead and turn that into a workbook. I was basically just using the worksheet pages I already had created and recreating it into a workbook form. Yeah, no, it's a great idea. Did you ever just consider doing the sheets as individual PDFs or print out? They they actually are. Um, oh, okay. Origi- like they were individual sheets, which is part of why it was a headache to kind of print them. <laughs> Each section in the workbook was an individual PDF yeah. and part of preparing it as a workbook was combining it and putting it in the right order. Wonderful. Um, do you have any tips to share for authors out there who might want to publish a workbook someday? Uh, the biggest tip would be to get really, really clear on what you're trying to convey. As I said, the reason this workbook came together so easily is because I'd been teaching it for 10 years. Um, so I already knew what I needed. I'd already had lots of feedback from people who had participated in the course and used the worksheets individually. So I had a chance to really hone what was effective and what people could use. Um, 
And I think that's the most important thing. When you're creating a workbook, it needs to have the kind of structure that people can work systematically through from the beginning of the book to the end in a logical, sensible way um, and be the most effective way for them to gain the information they need from the pages you're providing. That takes the most time, I think. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. I I got my copy a week ago and I, I've already cracked on with it and there's some great space just to be able to put some of your own notes. So oh, well done there. Um, also in the thought storming workbook, I just absolutely love the quiz at the beginning, which determines uh, whether you're a pantser or a planner. And for those who are listening who may not be familiar with those terms, are you able to put your spin on spin on that, what they are? Absolutely. So um, in the writing circles, we tend to think of plots and outlines. And a plotter is someone who absolutely loves the detail. They'll get into all of the specifics. They want to know every inch of their story and every inch of their characters before they ever begin writing the first word of the actual book that they're going to write. And that's one extreme end. Complete, absolute plotter won't begin any writing until it's all outlined and sorted. On the other end is the pantser who sits down and from the seat of their pants just starts putting the story on the page. They haven't really given it too much thought about where it's going to go. They might have a sense of a character or a sense of a plot, but they haven't really got formal structure outlined and in place they haven't developed their characters they haven't spent time researching for their story world and things like that they haven't done any world building they just sit down and they start from the first word and they write to the end of the book and just see where the story is going to take them so there's two extremes there but most people are actually on that sliding scale most writers find their own groove and comfort zone of how much planning they need but I've found over the years that the more planning I do the easier the writing stage becomes. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm i definitely, in the beginning of the writing journey, being a pantser, and the more I go on, the more I'm trying to develop either plot or characters beforehand, um, just because I, I tend to kind of go full steam and then I hit a bump in the road in the middle and I need all this information before and it kind of stops me in my tracks. But my um, points that I got, I think I got 13, so my results I was a middle grounder which um, says uh, you're in the safe zone and often struggle to write anything at all you enjoy exploring ideas but want to find the best ones and don't like wasting time writing about things you aren't passionate about which I thought this is me that was so spot on Um, you'll start stories with some planning but also enjoy the adventure of taking detours so yeah that was me down to a tease yeah Yeah, it's fascinating because I actually created that quiz years and years ago when I was doing Writer's Roundabout was a blog I used to run years and years and years ago. And the the writers on that group sort of thing in that community were a really close-knit and beautiful family of writers. And they all really loved that quiz. And it was really developed <laughs> around how people were effective as, as pantsers or plotters and those middle ground areas. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. It's, it's really great. I loved it. Um, how important is it to your story's plot to have an understanding of which one of these you are before writing a novel, whether you're a pants or a plotter? So I don't think it really matters to the story's plot because plot is very much a, a structure thing. And as people who have been raised on story, we all naturally have an in, innate sense of what story structure is. Like we, when we go see a movie or when we read a book, there's a degree of comfort when we're in the hands of a good storyteller because they know what they're doing with story. When you're first starting out as a writer, you don't necessarily know how to convey that structure. You don't realize that it's formal and, and fixed and there are actually rules around it. Um, because when we're in primary school, we were just taught stories have a beginning, a middle and an end. And that's 
not like it's true, but it's not really the whole story. There's definitely a structure in all storytelling. So I think the important thing isn't so much to know whether your pants are a plotter for the sake of your plot, but to know yourself as a writer and what your strengths and weaknesses are so that you can um, avoid potential plot holes and, and the bigger pitfalls that you're going to face during the writing process by making sure you filled in all of your gaps. And can you tell us what you classify to be the main points that make up a plot? I'm a big advocate of the hero's journey and there's a lot of distinction. Like you can look at the hero's journey, Very a, a selection of different authors have talked about it since the 70s. Um, some define it as eight points, some define it as 17 points. Um, but I like to focus on 12 main points, plus I add a 13th that I call the midpoint. Did you want me to define those? Uh, yes, please. <laughs> All right, so the ordinary world, plot point number one, the ordinary world introduces your reader to what is normal in your story world and gives them a chance to know who your character is. So, for example, if you're writing fantasy, ordinary world would show that things are fantastical and that to your character, they're not, they're normal and ordinary. But then you go to the next plot point called Call to Adventure, where something happens in the hero's ordinary world that upsets, upsets the status quo and forces the hero to act to fix things. So now they're not comfortable and they need to set things to right. But all of us refuse change. We don't like being out of our comfort zone. We don't want to have to do things. So plot point three is that refusal of the call where the character says, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. But then he meets a mentor who shows him why he's needed and lets him know he won't be alone. It's the kind of person that gives you that inner strength to know it's okay to step outside of our boundaries, which then leads into point five where the hero actively makes a choice to cross that threshold from the ordinary world into the special world of adventure. Point six tends to be several scenes. Basically, the first half of the second act is all tests of allies and enemies so the hero goes out to that special world and it's new and it's unfamiliar and he doesn't know what he's doing so he has to explore the unknown and get to know people and try and figure out how to fix the problem but he doesn't have enough information to actually find a solution until he reaches that added point the midpoint where he has a kind of a turning from a lack of knowledge to finally starting to understand what it is he needs to do and be able to make the choices where before, he was kind of being driven and led by a reactiveness. Now he's actively acting and choosing to act and making the decisions for how they proceed. He's stepping into being the hero rather than just a character. Um, point eight, as the greatest challenges ahead grow closer, he has to overcome his insecurities and face the darkest parts of himself, which is an approach to the inmost cave. Those are often... Um, dealing with the inner failings of, of the character so that he can become who he needs to be to face that end point. Often these inner failings lead to a darkest hour where the hero has to face the death of the mentor. Either physically or metaphorically, he's left alone and forced to continue on without guidance. So that was point nine. Point ten from that loss, when the hero finds that strength to continue, is often rewarded with some kind of boon in a seizing of the sword moment that gives him everything he needs to succeed. Often this seizing the sword is a tangible thing but not always it can it can sometimes just be the courage to go forward after that great loss that he's just had then 11 thus equipped he begins the road back which is often often a rapid moving scene that leads directly to final confrontation it kind of mirrors that original first threshold crossing and it's often chase scenes or big high dramatic scenes uh, between characters because it's leading into that big climatic moment 
which is that master of two worlds when he, um, as he faces the challenge head on in an epic climax and ultimately seeds, that's usually facing the antagonist, dealing with the bad guys and ultimately winning the day. To then bring you to that final 13th point, you bring the story full circle with the return of the elixir, which often means that everything that was set up in the ordinary world as the hopes and dreams of the character comes full circle and he may or may not return to that ordinary world, but you kind of revisit that beginning so that it's, it's, it is that full circle. Fantastic. And those uh, plot points that make up the hero's journey, would you say they could be applied to any genre, not, fant- not just fantasy and sci-fi? And, and... Yeah, they, they are, absolutely. Part of what I've been doing with, with plot storming is because it's been such a widely um, demanded workshop, I've been preparing it as a, a book, a manual that I can give out to people or, mm. or put online and, and make it more broadly available across the world. But I wanted to do more than just a handful of examples. In the four-hour workshop I present, um, I use Star Wars, Harry Potter, and Pride and Prejudice as my examples because they're well-known movies that people can easily mm-hmm. remember the individual scenes. But for the book, I wanted to make sure that we give opportunities for writers of any genre to see the structure in the stories that they know in their genre. So my daughter and I have been watching lots and lots of movies. We've got probably six of every genre that we've been deconstructing and and finding the hero's journey in those blockbuster movies so that people can see those examples because they do exist in every genre. There can be some distinctive differences. For example, in a mystery story, you often have a scene before the ordinary world, before you meet the main character of the story, you have the scene where the crime is committed and you get a sense of that foreboding, um, which is an introduction to the ordinary world of the story, but it isn't an introduction to the main character yet. Um, and in romance, you often have a twining hero's journey. The hero and the heroine of the romance both have their story arcs that they that are intertwining each other throughout the story. Yeah, that's fantastic. I did get a bit of a Star Wars feel looking at the cover of the plot storming <laughs> workbook for some reason. So the, yeah. the workbook uses the Star Wars font. That's, that's actually the I font said. from the movie. <laughs> I think so. I, I don't I haven't watched the movies actually, but yeah, I did. Um, I did feel like that with um subplots obviously being minor to the main plot. So I suppose how about what would some of the points be of subplots? I guess they wouldn't be as elaborate as say 13 points in a hero's journey but more less points i would say it's subplots are an awkward one for me to talk about because it doesn't have the same sense of structure a subplot you can have minor arcs within the story in fact most of the characters most of the main characters in the story will have their own individual hero's arcs going on um but i found that most of those develop naturally as you tell the story if you've got the foundation of your main plot and those 13 points defined and you know your characters and you've you've developed your characters then the individual values and motivations personality and environment that the characters are in are naturally going to bring forward the other little aspects Mm. of the b story and the c story so the the subplot stories are going to evolve naturally from that greater plot at least that's what i found with my own writing fantastic and what, what do you think is overkill with you know, main plots and subplots. Uh, I've it's something I'm working on at the moment, which is a YA, and I, I I feel like I've got too much going on, and that seems to be the way I work. And then I have to kind of either cull bits or you know, would you say just one obviously main plot, and then like we just said, a couple of subplots will flourish from that? Or that's what I found is most 
easily the way to work through a story for me. When I start letting myself get deviated too much from the main plot, it makes the main plot get shaky. That framework doesn't hold together too well when you're trying to wedge in all these other extra bits. So I, I tend to use a keep it simple approach where you focus on making sure you have a really, really solid foundation in that main plot and then just let those subplots naturally evolve. And sometimes that means in the editing process, you need to go in and add a bit more or take a bit out um, and tweak things. But I find for the first draft stage, focusing on that main plot and letting the subplots evolve naturally and then really honing that in the editing stage is what makes the difference. Fantastic. Um, in the plot storming workbook, you have several pages for writers to be able to build their characters. Uh, how much background and world building do you think you need to spend when developing characters? I suppose it just probably differs from person to person, hey? How detailed do you actually want to go? <laughs> it, yeah, it definitely does, which is why I, I think there's like four pages per character in that workbook, um, which is a lot of information to try and get. But I actually found that some people gravitate to certain things and, and while some people might be less interested in a character's psychology and more interested in their background, you kind of got to cater for all kinds of writers. But the that I consider those pages the character bible. So it's absolutely everything you could really want to know about your character. And it's really just a jumping off point for getting you to think about all those aspects of a character because that the more you know about them, the deeper you can go into them. And the more easily you'll find writing their voice and discovering their values and their truths and, and what it is that drives them in the story. But, but normally, like in the past, I've had my own stories where I've got their name maybe. And I, like for me, I have to make sure I have their values, the what is most important stuff, because then I know what they're fighting against. But sometimes I've gone into writing a story and that's basically all I've had, just those tiny little, little snippets of information. And while I'm writing, when I learn things about the character through the story, I'll go back to my character sheets and fill that in as I go so that I end up, by the time I finish the book, with a more complete character sheet. But having said that, I've just finished writing the draft manuscript of a book I call Spirit Talker that I wrote 50,000 words of in November last year. And that book has been the easiest and smoothest writing process I've had so far. And I think a lot of that is because before I started, during the October prep that we were doing with the Nano Crew, I actually fleshed out every single one of those details from those character sheets for every single one of the main characters in the story. So there were probably seven or eight characters that were completely fleshed out in every detail. And knowing the characters so deeply meant that I, I never needed to reference those character sheets because I just knew my characters. Yeah. I knew how they would react. I knew how they'd respond. And so anytime anything was going on in a scene, I wasn't jarred out trying to figure out who my characters are or what they would do. I just knew. And with the character hierarchy, so if you've got, say, five or six main people building up their background and, and stuff is important, secondary characters are just very minor characters. I mean, would you say you have to spend a lot of time even building them up if they only appear in the novel, say, once or twice? I know... J.K. Rowling built the big world of Harry Potter and spent ages, uh, apparently, with every single character doing, you know, their whole life's history. So, I mean, I suppose, again, it just differs. It's one of those things where in fantasy it's very common to really go detailed into the world building and characters are part of world building. So it, a lot of fantasy writers will flesh out characters, even if they're minor characters, because you never know 
the the eternal impact they might have on that story world. And a lot of us who write fantasy, we're not only writing one book, we're writing a series or we're writing several spin-off series that all exist inside that story world. So knowing even the lesser characters can be useful for that. But for the most part, I think writers need to prioritize their main characters and don't get too hung up on having to flesh out absolutely every character because often that's just a procrastination technique to avoid <laughs> writing the book. Um, and if the character, like um, in Spirit Talker, they mention the fact that Sarah has an aunt that's away and she's she's a photojournalist and that basically all I needed to know about her. She's Sarah's aunt, she's away and she's a photojournalist. So I didn't need to do a full detailed character sheet because she's only someone who's mentioned in passing like that. Um, but but I did have a character sheet for her. It wasn't filled in, but she did exist in my um, folder full of characters so that if I ever needed to remember, like if, if someone mentioned her later on, I could go in and make sure I made note of any details that I added because even though Spirit Talker is written as a standalone book, if there's enough interest and demand, there could be a sequel and I need to have that information on hand for that. But it's also... The, the more we develop our characters, the more resources we have to share with our fans and our readers. So it's always handy mm. to kind of keep those, keep in mind the fact that the book isn't the only product yeah. of your work. Yeah, that's a good point. Definitely a good point. And when developing the characters, what are the main points that you focus on that you think are most important, like obviously physical description, psychology, those types of things? I think. I think these days physical description is actually one of the least, least required. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of people, especially with a hero, with, with the, the protagonist, the main character of your story, a lot of people deliberately leave the description kind of vague so that every reader can pretend they are that character. But I have a condition called aphantasia, which means I can't visualize things inside my head. I have a blind mind's eye. When I close my eyes, I don't see pictures. So I can't see my characters and so I don't know what they look like, which means whenever I'm preparing a story, I always cast my characters. I go on to IMDb, I find actors in roles, playing movies that give me the same sense of the character I want and I steal their image and I stick it into my character dossier so that I know what my character looks like. And that's not necessarily going to end up in the book, but it helps give me grounding. So again, a lot of this character development stuff is stuff that we're doing for ourselves as writers to get to know our characters. It doesn't mean that all then gets put into the book. Um, so for me, I always need that character image. The other thing I always need is those values. What's more, what's the most important things to these characters? And I usually have a minimum of three values. And for the most part, I always try to make sure one value is clashing with the others. Yeah. So for example, nothing is more important than family and nothing is more important than finance. You can see the direct mm. clash going to happen there because obviously they need to work hard to make money and security for their family, yeah. but that means sacrificing family time and that's also important. And that's I found the values are where the best internal conflicts are going to come up for your characters in the story. So having those values means you've got the grit that's going to push their buttons, if you will, and, mm. and drive them to take action. It always just feels like a fine line. I've recently had um, the first three chapters of my YA, YA novel critiqued and then some of the feedback was that they had, because of the personalities and the setting and stuff, they had pictured one girl who, who I guess is almost like a stereotypical mean girl. So they have pictured, you know, the movie Mean Girls, a blonde 
in person, <laughs> where the girl is actually um, born in New Zealand from Asian descent. <laughs> oh, and then for them, they yeah. said they they said that they felt like they needed more of that kind of dropped in beforehand. And I was like, oh, okay. Because the cultural background of the character mattered, it is something that needs to get introduced with, and physical con- description can be a great way to do it. With Spirit Talker, I've just had it back from my first readers, and one of the comments that got made was that I mentioned later into the story, we're talking about Australia Day, and my character makes an offhand comment of being surprised that the character celebrates Australia Day because she's Aboriginal. And the readers hadn't realised that when we introduced that character earlier, so I needed to go back and put in the physical description to kind of lean itself towards like trusting that this is an Aboriginal person so that when it gets mentioned later, it doesn't come come as the surprise and force the reader to kind of reset their visualisation of what they thought the character was. Yeah, I'm almost at that point. What what kind of things did you put in to kind of point them in that direction without... it's, I just used the, like I'd already had, I was introducing three characters at the time. She was at, she's at school and she's being introduced to the new friend that she'd met in the class and that friend's new, two fr- like two best friends sort of thing. So there were three new characters and one of the characters I'd introduced as redheaded and freckled. So when I needed to slip in that Jen was Aboriginal, I said dark haired and dark skinned. So it doesn't define her as Aboriginal, but because yeah. people know that it's set in Perth, yeah. dark hair and dark skin is probably Aboriginal. Yeah, there's always just that fine line, hey, you don't want to be sort of stereotypical culture where, where you might upset people. or Yeah, and it's know. important to remember, especially when we're speaking of other cultures, that you want to make sure that you're sensitive and, and mm. address it in a way that's not going to be offensive. Yes, yeah, always. Um, so Spirit Talker, you write young adult fantasy and sci-fi novels please tell us about the ones you currently have out now and what's in the pipeline so my debut was the flight of talk which i published in 2014 it's a supernatural thriller featuring a snake shifter and her guardian angel um it's one of those ones that actually doesn't get a lot of traction because people don't like snakes (laughs) snake shifters (laughs) kind of make people feel a bit icky but i actually really love it because it delves into um, a personal exploration of my own bipolar disorder. Right. Um, it's about the inner battle between that um, kind of serpent inside, um, that demon that is mental illness and the positive good person that I want to express for the world sort of thing, mm-hmm. like that polarizing force. Um, except, of course, even though it's all about mental health, it's actually nothing about mental health. It's yeah. a fantasy story about this this woman's journey as she faces her inner serpent. And then my first sci-fi is a YA dystopian sci-fi called City of Light. It's the first in a trilogy, and it also delves into aspects of disability. Maya, the uh, Naya, the main character, has a terminal illness, but the story, at least in book one, the story is all around their need to um, fulfill the epic quest that she had been handed down. She's actually um, the clone of a great starship captain who had been sent out to find a cure to save their world from. Um, the Merc is what they call it. The, the world's had a cataclysmic event that has led to them, um, the Earth being covered with a Merc that prevents the sunlight from penetrating. Um, and so obviously plant life and everything has all died and they live in a domed city in a very isolated kind of way. So she's on the quest to bring the cure back to the planet to save the world. Fantastic. Um, and as I mentioned, 
Spirit Topica. I just finished. It's actually a deviation. It's not technically sci-fi. It's not technically fantasy. It leans towards YA literary. Um, and this one actually is dealing more blatantly with mental health because it's the story of a girl who is struggling between whether she's schizophrenic or a spiritual medium. She actually sees dead people, yep. but in the medical industry, seeing things that aren't there is considered a hallucination. And so you get uh, kind of boxed into a mental illness classification. And this is a story that's been a very real one for me because it's it's lived experience. I am mm. a spiritual medium oh, who wow. has a mental illness. Yep. So it's my own teenage journey of kind of coming to terms with what is real and what isn't and accepting that sometimes even when you're hallucinating, it's not detrimental to your life and it can be a positive. Mm, wow. Sounds, and so this is going to be series, hopefully? It's... Intended as a standalone. It, so it is written as a standalone. Um, but it's an interesting story because originally, probably about 10 years ago, I'd started planning this story as a standalone book where she goes kind of on a murder mystery hunt thing. She's like trying to solve the crime of someone's murder. Um, and then the story evolved and I thought, well, maybe I'll serialize it and maybe I'll make it a series of episodes, kind of like, um, Ghost Whisperer. Mm. where she, every book, she's solving a new unsolved mystery around a ghost person. But none of that ever felt right. So when I came to finally being able to write this story, it ended up just being this teenage girl's journey from complete mental breakdown because she thinks she's losing her mind, struggling, struggling with that, I'm a crazy person, to the point where by the end of the book, she's embraced who she is and this new gift that she has. And it's really just the story of that journey. But then my my first readers have already said that they would love to see more books in the series. So mm, who yeah. knows? <laughs> I don't I don't Wait, like I don't feel like I need to write more books. The story that yeah. I wanted to tell got told and yep. so it feels complete to me. But if readers love it and really love Sarah in that world, then who knows? I can I can explore that. There there are definitely more ghost stories within that world that I can tell. Yeah, that's it. Oh, it sounds fantastic. Can't, can't wait for to read that one. When's that due? Uh, it's, it's about to go out to beta readers. So if you want to be a beta reader, Joanne, just, just oh. let me know. You can get an advanced <laughs> copy. Um, yeah. But I'm actually planning to submit that one for the text prize when that opens up for publication, oh, uh, for gosh. submissions. Yeah. Um, I'm holding out for submissions for that one. Um, so I've got my fingers crossed for the text prize. That'll lead to publication. And if I don't win a text prize, then I was going to submit it to some Australian traditional publishers mm-hmm. um, just because it's YA literary it's a lot harder to market as an independent author mm-hmm. and I'd really like it to have um, opportunities to be submitted for um, national awards in Australia and those currently are all very traditional biased so yeah. YA literary it has traditional um, Mer- kind of merit, merit yeah. yeah and so I was gonna go that route and see how it goes which means I don't know when it'll get published yeah <laughs> Well, that yeah brings me to the next question, saying you are an independent author, and if you had ever tried to publish traditionally in the past or hope to in the future, so you sounds like you do hope to in the future. Have you dabbled in the past or not so much? My background, I've been writing since 1998, and I was a freelance writer for 12-odd years, full-time freelance. So I have traditional published content, articles, newspaper stories, uh, poetry, all manner of various different things uh, through those years. But I've never gone ahead and traditionally published a novel 
simply because when I run the math, it doesn't make sense. As an indie author, you keep 70% of your book sales. So if you sell a book for four bucks, you're keeping three bucks. If you sell a book traditionally, you get 10% if you're lucky. Like if you get a good contract, you get 10% of net. So if the, if the publisher sells it for 12 bucks, you might get a dollar, which doesn't feel very fair to me. (laughs) So that, that's like, my defining reason I don't is just because the numbers don't make sense. But I'm also a massive control freak. I hate the idea of long waits. I'm I, I'm completely an activist. When I make a decision, I'm doing it right now. I'm not holding out for the future. And the traditional method is slow. It's it's a cumbersome ship. It's heavy to move things around. They might sign your contract, but it'll be two years before the mm. book launches. And by then, my head's already four books down the line. I'm not in the headspace to promote that book anymore and I like to be able to make decisions about my covers I like to be able to control the when and the where and yeah have my hands in everything so I've definitely leaned towards indie just because of all of those factors Um, but I'm not against traditional and I think the right book in the right hands is what really matters Mm. which is why Spirit Talker it's not the best book for me to indie publish yes I could, could promote it and yes my readers are really clamoring for it they do want it but I don't feel like the right person to be the official publisher on that one I'd really like to see it in the hands of someone who can give it the right mm. kind of traction for the audience that it deserves because my my audience is sci-fi fantasy not literary yeah yeah no that's fantastic well best of luck with that uh, so what are your tips for authors who want to independently publish Okay, I prepared these in advance. Tip number one, <laughs> don't be afraid of making mistakes. They are inevitable, especially in independent publishing. We often jump in and learn as we go, and that's an important part of the process as an independent publisher. I think it's part of the process as any kind of creative kind of learning your learning the way through your business. Number two, community matters. Um, in the traditional fields, other writers often feel like a competition because you're you're up against all of those submissions and only 1% is going to get accepted. So everyone else who's submitting books is kind of the enemy. But in the indie space, we don't have that same energy. Everyone in the industry is actually working together because the more books that are released in your genre, the more your readers are loving your genre and therefore more likely to read your books as well. But the other thing to remember is that fellow authors in the indie indie circles they're your allies and your friends and they're going to help you build your network. If you develop friendships with people in your genre, then they will share your books with their readers. Um, they'll give you information about the market. They'll sh- help you know how things are going in Amazon and, and industry news and all those sorts of things. So the best people to kind of team up with and learn from are your fellow indie authors. And so that community really matters. Number three, success is a numbers game. In indie publishing, absolutely success is a numbers game. So in traditional publishing, you might be lucky enough to be able to release one book a year traditionally. You'll almost never be allowed to release more than one. In indie publishing, the more books you write, polish, publish and promote, the more success you'll have. So some writers are managing a book a month. I couldn't manage that, but three books a month is something I could manage. I mean, three books a month. month. (laughs) (laughs) A book every three months is something I could manage. So that's four books a year. 
but it's it's all about that long game. Well, you fir- a lot of people think, ah, I've finished a book, let's get it out in the world, and now I'm a famous published author and people are all buying up my book. But that's not the way it works ever, even in traditional publishing. What you'll find is that the more books you've released, the more traction all of your books get. But by about book five, your books are starting to cover their own costs and, and find their own readers without you having to do quite so much legwork. But by book 20, you've got full steam momentum happening. You can actually build a full-time writing career, full-time income from catalogue of books that you develop. Number four, it is a business and it has a steep learning curve and it's absolutely important to fully immerse yourself in it. Understand your industry, learn the ins and outs of every aspect. And yes, you might outsource some, some of the things you do, like you would definitely want to outsource to a professional editor at some point before you publish but you should understand every job that you give to anyone who works for you and any job that you're going to do yourself, like if you do your own layouts, you should know the ins and outs of that job meticulously. Number five, it's never a set and forget thing. So hitting publish is not the first, is not the last step. Um, the backlist that you build is something you want to nurture, maintain and constantly revitalize. For example, my debut novel in 2014, The Flight of Talk, was published with a cover that was a very much paranormal romance looking kind of cover and it's had two other covers over the course of the last what are we now 14 15 16 17 18 19 21 seven years so in seven years it's had three different covers and that's because the marketing and the targeting for the advertising all that sort of thing has evolved and changed over time and to get it in front of the right readers it needs the right look and the other great thing about being an indie publisher is that you can refresh the interior content as well so if a reader comes back and points out a mistake that's on page 120, you can actually go into the manuscript and update and fix that so that anyone buying the book after that point doesn't have that mistake. Um, number six, you have to love the whole process. It takes courage and passion and it's harder than it looks to make sure it's something that you truly want. Know your why. Go deep and truly understand yourself, what motivates you and what is what and what it is you want and need in your author career. It's definitely not the kind of thing you go into thinking you're going to make lots of money because that's mostly not the case unless you're really passionate and love it. If you're passionate and love it, yes, you can make lots of money, but unless you're really passionate and you love it, there are easier jobs. Go find something that you really love. (laughs) Yeah. And finally, don't be afraid to jump in and learn as you go because that's the only way we can really get into it. It's so easy to get paralyzed thinking that you don't know enough yet which until you start putting books out there, you're not going to learn. So you need to actually take the risks, put them out there, even if they're not perfect, learn as you go and fix everything as you find issues. Fantastic. That's, that's all my tips. Right. Yeah, that's, that's so much advice. And it's wonderful, Rebecca. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise. Now, you do coaching and mentorships. Where can writers discover these, these online and your work and follow you on social media? So everything about my um, novels and my coaching and my author services are all on my author website, RebeccaLafarsmith.com. That's R-E-B-E-C-C-A-L-A-F-F-A-R-S-M-I-T-H.com. Um, and all of my social media links are on there, but I'm most active through Facebook. So if you're trying to message me in real time, that's the best place to do that. Thank you so much for sharing every information. That was great. Thank you, Joanne. That's the end for now, authors. I hope you are further forward in your author adventure after listening, and I hope you'll listen next time.
remember to head on over to the Hybrid Author website at www.hybridauthor.com.au to get your free author pass. It's bye for now.